Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. This is God's Word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open now the eyes of our hearts that we might see all that you intend for us, wonderful things from your word. Lord, a challenging passage, hard to understand. Would you give us insight and would you speak to us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, it might have been around chapter 9 that you quit. Or decided to keep on, but really scratch your head as 
what in the world does this mean? I know I felt that way. You know, it starts and then it just gets crazier and crazier. And it can be overwhelming. I think part of what we have to do, though, is use our imaginations. I talked about this in the very beginning. And we have to be careful. But God gave us our imaginations. uh, You know, and our imaginations, although all of us are marked by sin, our imaginations aren't perfect. Uh, Our imaginations can be really useful. And I'm thinking in terms of the way that we read books like Narnia or The Lord of the Rings. I'm not equating these to Scripture, so don't misunderstand that. But if you grew up reading Narnia or, in my case, never actually reading the book, but watching the cartoon version of the movie, if you remember the cartoon version of the movie, uh, you knew the story, but you really didn't get the story. And then somewhere along the way, I figured out that, for example... Aslan was Christ. He represented Christ, and it changes everything. And then you, later I did read the books with Micah when he was young, and the girls still hold that against me that I didn't do that with them. Uh, But uh, I did read the books, and I would read these passages, and I would get chill bumps because Lewis was trying to tell a story, but he was telling another story by the story that he was telling if you had eyes to see the other story. So that's what I'm talking about here, that we understand that Aslan, for example, not only represents Jesus, but he depicts Jesus. He's not just a representative in a story, as in just simply a symbol, but he tells us something about Jesus. And so those scenes when he comes up and is tender toward Lucy and kind to her, and we recognize the tenderness of Christ to us in our moments of struggle and pain. Or we think of the scene where, uh, is it Reepicheep, you know, <laughs> says, I'm not worthy, and he roars, and yet the tears come down because you realize uh, what's happening there is not just a mouse that lost its tail and was given it back. If you don't know anything of what I'm talking about, read the books. There's more to the story. We have to use our imagination, and we have to be informed about it. So again, I'm not trying to equate modern fiction to Scripture. I'm trying to help us see that when we come to the book of Revelation, there, it's not the same, but it's similar in how we have to understand that these are many of these pictures here are symbols. And my argument for that has been throughout our time that we see this, but we do need discernment to know what are symbols and what are not symbols. But we read Revelation different than we read the book of Genesis, which tells, it's a historical book. Or we think of a narrative like the Kings. Uh, We think of the epistles like Ephesians, a doctrinal letter to a real church that existed. I mean, we read those things differently, excuse me, than we do the book of Revelation. So when we come to this first image, you think of the bottomless pit. And maybe you read right by that and didn't realize that apart from our imagination, we have no concept of a bottomless pit because we live in a finite world. There's no such thing as a bottomless pit in our world. There might be really, really deep pits, but they all have an end. But you start thinking about what a bottomless pit is and it becomes, it becomes kind of scary because except in our imagination, 
how can we comprehend what it is like to fall and fall and fall and fall and never stop falling? The best thing that we have would be our bad dreams. You ever had a nightmare where you're falling and you don't stop falling and you're filled with terror and even the only way you stop falling is to wake up and then when you wake up, your heart's beating fast and you're sweating and you're still filled with terror? So it requires some imagination to read the book of Revelation, to understand, to even think about what all of this is. What are we seeing here? And let me just mention, not to get ahead of us, but if you think of what a bottomless pit represents, of course, what it is, symbolically, is hell. We're going to talk about that. But also what it represents is hell. To fall and fall and fall, to suffer and suffer and suffer, and for it never to end and never to end, tells us something not just that it represents hell, it depicts hell. Tells us something about it. It's horrifying. So the pit, we see it opened in the fifth trumpet. It's significant for many reasons. One of the reasons, though, is that it is showing us what John is talking about is not something simply in the physical realm, but rather in the spiritual realm. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. That doesn't mean that there aren't physical outworkings to the spiritual realm. But what he's describing as this opening up and this unleashing uh, is... Speaking of the demonic realm, something is happening here. He's describing something that's happening there. Now, we know that there are, again, physical consequences to the demonic realm. Uh, All under the sovereignty of God, you know, we might think, well, you know, uh, when Jesus cast out demons, there were physical effects of that. Or we think more in our modern time, things like the Holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, Even just this last year, I mentioned a few weeks ago, so far 1,500 Christians have been killed in Nigeria just this year alone. There are demonic influences behind that. We think of abortion, that it's not only legal, but it's celebrated. Consider the sexual revolution or the defiance of the pride movement and all who shake their fist in the face of their creator. Even though we can't see the demonic realm with our eyes, we see the effects of it working in so many ways. And so what the fifth and sixth trumpets do for us is peel back the layers a bit to show us the judgment that is coming and how it's going to increase. We've talked about this, that there is an intensity, uh, an increasing intensity as we get to the end. But at the same time, how God will use that to accomplish his purposes. And that's hard for us to understand. Now, where do we go when we talk about how God uses evil to accomplish his own purposes. There's no better example of that than at the cross. It is the supreme example of God taking and using the evil acts of humans to uh, commit the most atrocious and unjust act ever and yet use it to accomplish our redemption. And I think we appreciate that. We value that. But it's a little more difficult when it comes to our own suffering. Because our own suffering feels personal. It feels like an affront. How could you do this, God? How could you let this happen? And yet, when we understand God as holy, and when we understand the problem of evil, and we realize that the restraint that has been shown 
even in our own lives, to keep us from completely self-destructing is grace. In other words, we tend to focus on the bad things we experience, failing to see that if we were left alone to our own devices, we would do worse. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to talk about that. But we're not our hearts arrested, and I'm speaking here of believers. We're not our hearts arrested by the love of God and given life through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our wretchedness would carry us beyond what we are even able to imagine. It's not just out there. It's right here. The problem is right here. But even the unbelieving world knows restraint from sin, even though they may never acknowledge it or see it. The world is not as bad as it could be. Let me say that again. The world is not, has never been as bad as it could be. God has restrained. Um, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I won't, I'll tell you that in a minute. But God has restrained a sin's effects in our world. If you think back to our study of Genesis, what did he do to Cain after he murdered Abel? He put a mark on him so that what? No one would murder him. No one would kill him. No one would take his life. If you think later in Genesis when Abraham lied again about Sarah not being his wife, being calling it, saying it was his sister, and Abimelech takes Sarah, but then God stops him from doing anything and visits him in a dream and says, it was I, God says this to Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. To an unbeliever, God intervenes. And so while we suffer and experience tragedies in this life, we should recognize that the troubles are a result of sin, and yet God remains sovereign over all of these things, just as he was at the cross. He is the only one who is sovereign, and therefore able to work in spite of our own sins and others' sins against us. He is our only hope. He is the only one who can redeem horrific tragedies and heal deep losses. And while He has allowed us to sin, He is not the author of sin, for He is holy. The God of the Bible and His plan of redemption is the only satisfying answer to the problem of evil in this world. And even when we can't make sense of it, He is the only one who can offer us true hope. We've got to keep this in mind as we look at these last two, or this, these fifth and sixth trumpets. So with that in mind, what is happening here? Well, there's something shifting, there's something changing, an apparent removal of restraint, the opening of the abyss. Not only is there a removing of restraints, and again, depending on the position that you take, different positions on how all of this pans out in the end, uh, depending on that position, it does seem clear that things are getting worse. We trace this through the seals. The seals and the trumpets and the bowls all parallel each other. We see the same thing happening now with the trumpets, seemingly increasing in intense intensity. But through it all, we see that God is sovereign and even uses the evil, Satan's scheming, and even Satan's acts to accomplish his purposes, even in Satan's own acts become judgment against Satan and those who follow him. And the same is true of sin in our own lives. We see that in Romans 1, where God can, can remove restraint in the lives of sinners so that the sin itself becomes the punishment. 
the judgment. Look in verse 1, as the fifth angel blows his trumpet, John sees a star fall from heaven to earth, and the star is clearly, a, is clearly symbolic of a person. You know, we've talked about understanding this book and the tendency for some to understand everything literally might describe this as a, a meteor when they see other stars or, or a comet or something. But this is clearly a person. Because if you look in the verse, it says, the star fell and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The star represents someone. And so it is clearly symbolic. Who is the star? Well, uh, throughout our book of uh, study, the book of Revelation, when we wonder what a, an image represents, we go look at how it's used in other passages of Scripture. And we think of Jesus in Luke 10, 18 saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this is speaking of something that happened far back in history, not this event that's being described here in John, but similar uh, imagery being used there. Now, that doesn't mean that this star is Satan. Uh, I think that it is. Uh, Some argue that it's not Satan, but a high-ranking demon who has been given authority to open the, uh, the abyss. But either way, the, uh, the abyss is what our attention is pointed to. And it is this bottomless pit, or, or it, the, it's called the bottomless pit in the ESV. It's known as the abyss elsewhere. This is simply hell. Uh, it's not called the lake of fire in Revelation until after the final judgment, but we know that Jesus described hell as a lake of fire. So this is the same uh, that we're seeing here. Uh, but if you remember when Jesus cast out the, uh, the, the, the demon, we find out later in the story it was demons, in the Gerasene demoniac, uh, they were called, they identified themselves as legion, for they were many. But they then begged him, what? They wanted to go into the pigs, but where did they not want to go? To the abyss. They didn't want to go to the abyss. And so there's seemingly, uh, I mean, however we understand that, and we can't imply too much in, but we can certainly understand that there is at least God's sovereign rule over what demons are able to do. And there's some restraint in that they even had to ask, you know, not to be sent back to the abyss. That's what we're talking about here. As the abyss is unlocked, John immediately sees smoke rise out. The sun is darkened. Uh, We think of uh, demonic activities confusing and darkening the minds of people. Um, We see that throughout history when we think of, you know, the events that I mentioned earlier, like, uh, you know, the Holocaust. And we, you know, how did people allow this to happen? Or we think of slavery in our own country. Why didn't people stand up or more people stand up or whatever? There's a darkening of minds. There's a confusion that comes from demonic activity. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so here Paul is describing what it's like basically to live apart from Christ. That's the the image that's given here. Darkened in understanding, ignorant, hardness of heart, callous, giving giving themselves up. Uh, Apart from the grace of God, this is where we end up. And that same picture is painted in Romans 1. We won't take time to read that. But in Romans 1, God, or or Paul writes about what what God does there is, is, is really turning them loose 
in their sins. So that the sin itself becomes the judgment. It ends in destruction. Now the smoke here is just the beginning because soon after the smoke begins to emerge up like, an, like that from a furnace, uh, now we see locusts coming. And they're given power like scorpions. This is verse 3. I did a word count in this passage, just in this chapter alone. The word like is used 13 times. Again, just pointing to the symbolism that's being used here. There are those who understand that there will be a plague and this will happen as a physical, literal plague. But I think that it's problematic, especially when we see all of the other symbolism used here. These locusts have a power, but it's not unlimited. They're not allowed to do what locusts typically do. They're not allowed to eat grass and green stuff like what locusts do, but they're allowed instead to inflict suffering only on those who do not have the seal of God, verse 4, that is, unbelievers. These, are not, this, this is not, this is, these aren't locusts like we think of locusts. This is something else, okay? Um, now, we think of, of, when we looked at the seals, wars, natural disasters, famines, pandemics, affect all people, believers and unbelievers alike. This is something that God is restraining from allowing to touch believers, So there's something to say. I don't want to go so far as to say that the demonic realm can have no influence in the life of a believer. I think the demonic realm can have influence in the life of a believer. But there is an extra level of restraint, at least at this particular event, in what the demonic realm is able to do. Ultimately, God has to allow what he allows anyway. No one can do anything apart from his permission. And so there is some comfort in that. But notice that the torment doesn't result in death but that the people wish for death, verse 6 tells us. Again, we have another preview of hell, because that will be the desire that it will end, and it will never end. John goes on in verse 7 to describe the locusts. I think here it becomes even more abundantly clear that these are symbolic. This is not something that's literally going to happen. Um. I will say that those who who do take a more literal approach, it's almost symbolic, but with a twist. They will say that these represent the war machines, that John was seeing tanks and helicopters and things, and so he he didn't have the language uh, to describe those, and so he used the language of locusts and scorpions. I think that's reaching. Uh, Rather, John is describing something that he is seeing spiritually that is symbolic of the demonic assault, Horses were used primarily for warfare in this period. Um, you, you notice how in each description it's like crowns of gold, like women's hair. These are all describing something that he's seen that's not what he's seen, but it's like what he's seen. And there's a sense of, of a description in each of these elements. It's warfare. Horses were used. Uh, crowns of gold, deceptive victories. You think of that in our own culture, how we often feel like, God, where are you? Why aren't you working? Why are you letting this happen in the culture? Why aren't you triumphing? You know, we're, we're, we're the underdog in the sense. These are perceived victories. Satan's plans will not prevail. Um, teeth like lions, they're devouring. Breastplates plates like iron, they're impenetrable. Noisy wings causing confusion and dismay. And so it paints a picture of what the demonic realm does. 
And while we can see this clearly happening in our own day, it certainly happened throughout history, this seems to be something, describing something that is happening before the end. Again, an intensification uh, that is coming up. Now, I'm taking the spiritual approach as I describe these things. I'm not going to go through all the other approaches, but I do want to mention uh, the historicist approach is particularly interesting on the fifth trumpet. If you remember, uh, the preterists are going to focus on Jerusalem. It's a very tight, small period of history. Uh, so they see this as the attacks of Rome and so forth on Jerusalem. The historicist sees a broader picture of history in each of these events, seals, trumpets, bowls, representing periods of history, events in history. And they see this fifth trumpet as representing the Arab attacks led by Muhammad uh, against the Eastern Roman Empire. And I won't go into all the detail. I encourage you to read more on that. There's a lot of striking similarity there. It's pretty compelling. Uh, My problem is you don't see all that same similarity in all of the others. So for that reason alone, I'm not going to jump over into the historicist camp. But I can appreciate that a lot of this this particular um, uh, detail matches up. With that, and if you want more detail on that, I'll, I'm going to save time now, but you can email me and I'll send that to you. In verse 10, John goes on to add that these locusts had tails like scorpions to bring even more suffering. But notice that it's only to be for five months. So it is a specific amount of time. And five months in terms of the way time is used in Revelation is a pretty short time. So this, most people think it's a brief period of time. Now, is it five months or does the five months represent five years or... Five centuries. I mean, we don't know uh, because it's it's the way numbers are used. When we look at Old Testament uh, prophecy, we can always make sense of it because we're looking in hindsight. But it's much more difficult looking ahead. We don't know. We can't be definitive of that. But in terms of the scorpion and the snake allusions that we see in Revelation, uh, we can't treat those literally, or shouldn't, I would argue, treat those literally, uh, that, that these uh, had tails and the locusts and so forth. Because if you look at the way Jesus uses similar language, it was clearly symbolic. In Luke ten nineteen, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What happens when we take that verse literally? When my nephew visited a couple years ago, he and Micah pulled up to come see me at the church, and they pulled into the drive under. And he got out of the car, and there was a snake lying there at the door. And for some reason, I found another one this week. Snakes like these doors. It's like they want to come inside or something. We don't let them inside. But my, my nephew, who has a very dry wit, got out of the car and saw the snake, and he goes, this isn't one of those kind of churches, is it? <laughs> Um, I, I still, to this day, give him a hard time for that. Uh, what happens when we take Jesus' description literally? Well, we become snake handlers because that's what it says, right? You can handle snakes and scorpions and you won't be harmed. And we know some people who have thought that. But read the verse again. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Over all the power of the enemy. Jesus isn't talking about handling snakes and scorpions. Jesus is talking about the demonic realm, and he uses snakes and scorpions in the Gospels as well as we see it in the book of Revelation and other places to describe the demonic realm. And so we see that happening here as well. Scorpions and snakes represent the power of the enemy. 
Uh, now, the, the period of five months I've mentioned is, is likely a short period of time. It's a specific period of time. God is sovereign. He will ensure that they only do what he allows, when he allows, for as long as he allows. And then they must stop. These demonic forces we see in verse 11 are under a king called here Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. But we know that the king of kings rules over all these matters and they have only the power that he permits them to have and no more. Again, I think this is describing Satan. He is the king of the demonic realm. Verse 13, we move on to the sixth trumpet and we see much of the same theme of sovereignty uh, and, and, and much of the same theme of escalation because here we see, or intensification, we see that now death comes to a third of mankind. Depending on how one understands this, it's, there's a number of approaches, but if you take, for example, um, I think war is used here as imagery for the demonic realm, but I do think that our wars that we've had, uh, that evil does enter into warfare. Uh, not that warfare is always evil. There's just war theory. It's understandable that sometimes war is necessary. But when you talk to people who have actually been in battle, there is often a scarring, an experience of something, an evil that they have seen that they don't even want to talk about. It's why so many don't offer those stories, because there's something that happens in that period. If we look at our warfare, for example... In the last 125 years, uh, I didn't do exact calculations. I just looked at a lot of graphs. But there's been a lot more deaths in the last 125 years than in any other period in history through warfare. And so is that what's being represented here? I don't know. Is this something that's going to come? We can't be sure. Uh, is the demonic, uh, does the demonic realm seek to influence and work through uh, the warring of nations? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think when when things are uncovered, we see all kinds of evil. But note that in verse 15, it is a specific time. Hour, day, month, year. That's why even though it, it, it may be both describing what's happened throughout history, it's also describing something that is to come. That's my argument, that God is sovereignly orchestrating these things for a specific time. We see also in verse 19 that the description follows the same pattern as the fifth trumpet uh, in that these are not literal horses that with snakes for tails. Again, something that would be hard to imagine. Now, God can do anything. And if we have something like that emerge, uh, we, this, the outcome is the same. God wins. He saved us. We're his. We don't have to worry uh, my philosophy is if you see a snake, you run. The same is true if it's on the tail of a horse. But I don't think that's what's really going to happen. I think these are, again, symbols that are used in the same way that Jesus used symbols when he said, I give you power to tread on scorpions and snakes and over all the power of the enemy. That's when we get to verses 20 and 21 that we see the point driven home of the fifth and sixth trumpets. And it's really not surprising. What do we see? Well, it's that instead of repentance, there is a hardening of hearts and almost a doubling down in their commitment to idolatry. Why is that not surprising? Well, throughout the trumpets, we have seen a lot of imagery that's taken us back to what? The exodus, the plagues, the language of plagues, the similarity of plagues. And we think of what happened there with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and that they, after each plague, hardened their hearts and would not relent. And so it's the same picture here. 
So this serves as a warning. It's both a call to the unbeliever to not harden your heart, but to turn in faith to Christ. But it's also it's, it's a warning to us who are believers not to harden our hearts or tolerate idolatry in our lives. We see here, and, and it's not the first time we've seen this in Revelation, but John is linking idolatry to demonic activity. Idolatry is not something to be trifled with. I'm not talking about going to a pagan temple here. I'm talking about what we make as idols in our hearts. John Calvin is known for describing our hearts as idol factories. It's what we do, right? What we want, what we lust for, what we desire, we turn into idols, so we covet, whether they be power or relationships or possessions or security. And John is linking them here to demonic activity. In other words, idolatry is never neutral or benign. Idolatry is serious, and as Christians, we must fight it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. And so there's a seriousness that comes to this, and how, uh, how do we guard our hearts? The imagery is symbolic but there are physical consequences to sin. I've talked a lot about Romans 1 today at the end of Romans 1. If you haven't read Romans 1 in a while, I encourage you to look at that this afternoon. But after Paul describes that there's this loosing uh, of, of, of people or loosening of people to their own, uh, own sin, he finishes that chapter saying this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so this is an exhortation that, yes, we must speak out against sin in our culture, but we must personally fight to kill sin in our own hearts. It starts with us, okay? The problem's not just out there. The problem is right here. And if all you do is criticize and condemn and get angry and mad about what's happening out there and you don't get critical about what's in here, and you don't get mad about what's in here, and you're not fighting about what's in here, you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. We all do this. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm saying this with you. This is my tendency. If it's your tendency, I'm with you in this. I'm the problem. Romans 12, Paul writes, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is a call to us not to be slothful. Not to just tick the days off on the calendar And seek the most pleasure and enjoyment, but to recognize that God has given us a fixed number of days, however long that is, and we are to live steadfast unto Him. At the same time that we seek to mortify sin in our own hearts, we must also not lose hope. Greg Beale writes that the pastoral purpose of this passage is to remind us as readers that antagonism to our faithful witness will continue to the end of history and that we should not be disheartened because it is part of God's plan in which we can trust. 
He's going to use it. We can't understand it. We can't make sense of it. But the sovereign, redemptive purposes of God will not fail. And nothing can separate you and I from from his love. Although not a bottomless pit, I did think of another example in Scripture of something that is infinite. A picture of an unending action, something that never, that you can't uh, get to except in your imagination, an eternal transfer. In Psalm 103, we read that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Folks, that's where we hang our hat. Because we can look at the world around there and see all the problems, and then we can catch ourselves and say, no, 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 I'm the problem. And, and, and if, if that's where we stop, then we still have a problem. It's only when we get to the gospel that the problem evaporates. <laughs> the solution is found in Christ, that He has redeemed us, that as far as the east is from the west, so has He removed our sins from us. Our hope is not found in this world or in the circumstances of our lives, but it's to be found only in the one who redeemed us and made us his own. Let's pray. Father, would you plant deeply into our hearts the beauty and hope of the gospel that we might walk in a difficult world through lives that can be difficult, through suffering that can be painful, through tragedies that we can't make sense of. Lord, would you cause us to walk with the hope of the gospel, that you are both sovereign and good, that you have accomplished through the work of Christ what we could not accomplish ourselves, our redemption. And we are vessels of your mercy. We don't deserve any good thing, but you have chosen in your kindness to lavish on us the immeasurable riches of Christ Jesus. Make us truly thankful for that. I pray for those who are yet to believe, for those who are struggling to believe, to see how this all makes sense. Would you open their eyes to the incredible love that you have shown to us in Jesus? It's in his name I pray. Amen.